are in John's Gospel, chapter 17, what is popularly called the High Priestly Prayer, could also be called the Lord's Prayer, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through to 5 of John chapter 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you, before the world existed. Let us pray for God's blessing upon His Word preached. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word and we look forward to not only how the Word will affect us, but seeing these words fulfilled. And they are fulfilled and they will be. And we pray that we may be partakers of all the glory that is spoken of here. For Jesus' sake, Amen. This is a, a very special passage uh, to me personally because there was an occasion several years ago. Some of you may remember, I don't know, but uh, it was when our friend Jed Shep was, was still around and I said, oh, can you preach? This is early in the week. Can you preach Sunday night? And he's, he answered affirmatively. And so I came Sunday night, walked in, and uh, he was sitting right around where Doug and Kathleen are sitting, I'll never forget. And I said, all right, so uh, you're up tonight. And he looked at me and laughed. And I was like, what are you laughing about? He says, no, I didn't think you were serious. And um, that's because Jed came from a a church where uh, the consistory has to send an official letter inviting one to preach. Uh, And if you know me, that's not going to happen. Uh, if I say, hey, can you preach Sunday? I, I mean that. Uh, and so he looked at me, I looked at him, and I knew he wasn't going to get up here and preach. So I rushed downstairs and thought, okay, what can I come up with in a, a few minutes that will not cause a riot in the church? And so I chose John chapter 17, verses 1 to 5, because I basically thought these words preach themselves. They are the sum and substance of the gospel, of what the Bible's all about, that even if you haven't fully prepared all week, you can say something about John chapter 17, verses 1 to 5. And really you are uh, being drawn into what is called the inner sanctum. Uh, You are being drawn into a place that is extremely rare in the New Testament, If you look at the amount of times we note Christ praying, they are frequent. But when you look at the amount of times we see Christ praying, you don't often actually get the words that He prayed to the Father. You get the fact of the prayers to the Father, but you don't often get the words. There's a sentence here and there. But generally speaking, you don't get to hear what those words were. Well, here is something that is extraordinary. It is out of the ordinary in terms of what the New Testament affords us. It is a look into what Christ is saying to the Father. And this is called the high priestly prayer because these words 
theologians have said, are a copy of Christ's eternal priestly intercession. So what is Christ saying in heaven right now? These words give you insight into that. J.C. Ryle actually called this the most remarkable chapter in the Bible for that very reason that you have the eternal Son speaking to the eternal Father with the bond of the eternal Spirit joining them together in these words. Philip Melanchthon, the German uh, reformer, preached 41 sermons just on John chapter 17. And he said, No voice has ever been heard or ever will be heard like this prayer offered up by the Son of God Himself. There were some theologians who said they dared not to actually preach on John chapter 17. And John Knox, before he died, had his wife read to him John 17 because it was the place where he first cast his anchor. That is to say, where he first came to know the Lord was in these words. Now, what makes these words so remarkable? Well, you will notice that everything that is ultimately significant about the Christian faith is highlighted even in the first five verses. There's more, but everything that is significant can be found here. So, Jesus is lifting His eyes to heaven. This is a way in which He is uh, not denying that God is everywhere present, but it is a way in which He is seeking to acknowledge that God is in heaven. He is the Father of heavenly lights from whom every good and perfect gift comes. And so, from heaven, God is able to bless. And what is Christ seeking? He is seeking a blessing. Notice the words that He uses. Father, the hour has come. Now, those words mean simply this, that in the course of His life, when they were seeking to arrest Him, such as in John chapter 7, His hour had not yet come. What is John saying as he highlights this theme throughout the Gospel? He is saying that Jesus has an hour. And that hour will come. It had not come, but it will come. And when it comes, it means that His life will end. Jesus, knowing that His hour has come. His life was always a perpetual Gethsemane. That is to say, His life was always lived in the reality that He would one day die. There was never a moment, as far as the Son is concerned, where He did not know who He was, why He came to earth, and so on. But until this point, He was the most secure person in all the universe in terms of His life. But once this hour came, He was also the one person in the universe that was certainly going to die. Jesus when he knew his hour had come. What does he say to the Father? Glorify your Son. See, the words glorify your Son have to be interpreted in light of the hour has come, the hour of his death. So when he says glorify your Son, isn't it remarkable that he says as soon as he realizes that his time has come to die, he is saying glorify your Son. As soon as he realizes he's going to the cross, he says, glorify your Son. In other words, as hideous as the cross experience would be for him, he understood that as his glory. Glorify your Son now that my hour of death on the cross has come. 
And that's something interesting about the Gospels. There are sparks of glory where there is shame and humiliation. He is born in a manger, but then the wise men, the Magi, come and visit Him. He is uh, one who is a guest for dinner at uh, Simon the Pharisee's house in Luke chapter 7. He is not afforded the typical hospitality that is given to guests. And yet a prostitute comes and weeps and cleans his feet with her tears and there is glory there. He is tempted in the wilderness by the devil but then receives angelic assistance. And so the cross is where he will receive his glory. Notice that he understands this glory that he receives as a glory that he also gives The hour has come, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. The Father glorifies Himself preeminently in Jesus Christ. And then, if you were to look at the preeminent way in which He glorifies Himself in Jesus Christ, it all culminates at the cross. Think about what the Christian faith is saying to you. It is saying the way in which God glorifies Himself in the clearest, most visible way is in the person of Jesus Christ. And the way in which He glorifies Himself in the most visible way in the life of Jesus Christ is at the place where His Son is most humiliated. Is in the place where His Son is most tortured. Is in the place where His Son suffers greatly. That is where God glorifies Himself. And why is that? Because God's attributes nowhere shine more clearly than at the cross. Where else in all of world history do you get the justice and the love of the Father? Where else do you get the patience and holiness of the Father? Where else do you get His goodness and His wrath? Where else do you get God so clearly stamped upon the world? Take all of the wisdom of how He's created the world, the sun and the rivers, the moon, the lakes, Take a person and the way in which we're fearfully and wonderfully made and they do not come close to showing you the glory of the Father as in the cross of His Son. Glorify your Son at the cross that your Son at the cross may glorify you since, and this is important, He is not merely glorifying the Father because He goes to the cross. In the abstract, there's no glory there. But this is not written in the abstract. This is written in the context that Jesus Christ has been given authority over all flesh. All things have been given into His hand by the Father. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to the Son. And it's a remarkable thing actually This phrase, all flesh, is a Hebrew idiom that is spoken of the Father in Jeremiah, that He has authority over all flesh. And so Jesus Christ is saying, you have given Me authority over all flesh, something that belongs to God alone. In Jeremiah 32, verse 27, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for Me? Is salvation too hard for Me? And so Jesus is saying, I have authority over all flesh. Jesus is taking a prerogative that belongs to God alone and saying He possesses that authority. And what is that authority? To give 
eternal life to all whom you have given Him. Eternal life. That eternal life is something that we will one day experience. And it will be an eternal life whereby after one billion years of your existence, you will only be experiencing the first day. In Psalm 90, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day to God. And that's just a figure of speech because He's eternal. That will be true of you in heaven. A day will be like a thousand years and a thousand years will be like a day. There's a book, I'm sure you've all got it on your bookshelves at home and read it. It's called uh, Your Best Life Now. What? It's a bestseller. And why wouldn't it be a bestseller? Who doesn't want their best life now? And the answer is me. I don't want my best life now. Are you kidding? I want my second best life now, but not my best life now. It's just, if you fail at the title, you know there's a problem. <laughs> Think about that. You don't need to open it. Your best life now, if this is my best life now, I don't want to know what my next life will be like. I think I'm going to write a book, actually. The elders are going to give me a few weeks off. Your worst life now. Three copies sold. <laughs> my mom, my wife, and Katie. <laughs> They'll ask for it for free, so. What is God saying here? To give eternal life. That's the glory of the Gospel. That there's a sense in which, yes, our life now is good. All things work together for good. And we are filled with hope and joy. But the small beginnings of what we've been promised now do not compare to the eternal life that is offered by Christ Himself. This is eternal life to all that you have given Him. That is all of His people. And what is this eternal life? That they know You, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. What is eternal life? I love chapter 17, verse 3. When you go to a place, let's say a crazy place like the Philippines. You go to the Philippines and I did a conference and they all come up with me with a book and they want you to sign the book. And I go, no, no, I just can't sign a book. That's silly. I, it's it's kind of gross. You don't just sign a book. You have to say something that will be like, uh, may God bless you and keep you or may you have a faithful um, life serving the Lord. And then you put a Bible verse in, at least I think you should, because then they're going to go and look up that Bible verse and you can redeem the signature. And John 17.3 is the verse that I typically like to put in a book because I want people to go and see that this is the sum and substance of their Christian life. To know God and to know His Son. That's what Christianity is all about. To know God. Not just to know about God. Not just to have some intellectual pursuit of theology. But to know Him in such a way, and this is a Hebrew way of speaking, to know Him intimately. To know Him fervently. To know Him passionately. To know Him in a way where it's not just knowing about Him. I went uh, to... We have uh, uh, 
couple in our uh, Surrey uh, church, uh, Tuningas, and he's an older minister. And I went over Thursday morning, and uh, we, uh, he wanted to chat, and the next minute I'm having egg on toast, and his wife uh, gluten-free, so the toast was actually quite nice. I need to remember it's from Safeway, and it's good, good bread and all that. And we're having a nice time, and we're talking. And then as we're leaving, he takes me into his office. He's like, I need to thin down my books. And I says, actually, I, I've got too many books as it is. Uh, but then he had a package arrive from Amazon. And uh, this Amazon package was a copy of Augustine's Confessions, which has been newly translated for 16-year-olds. That was the idea. And there's a story in the introduction behind that. And this book, actually, we haven't had the grads come up, so it won't be next week, but hopefully the week after we can order this Augustine's Confessions. That's the book you're getting. It's for 16-year-olds. No surprise. I know you want the check in the book as well. Yes, we'll give you your check. But if you don't read Augustine's Confessions, and may I just say this with the apology for sounding slightly legalistic. I know you shouldn't say that from the pulpit. You have to read Augustine's Confessions. This is a man who knows God. I was reading the Confessions last night and I all of a sudden pulled up my computer and I just started hammering away at the keyboard because I said, you know what? Some of these people aren't going to listen to me when I preach this. They're going to say, ah, yeah, Augustine's Confessions. Then they're going to go back to their lives and read this and that. But they won't read Augustine's Confessions because they don't want to be legalistic and obey that. So let's just say, fine, you don't read Augustine's Confessions, you're going to hear Augustine's Confessions then. You're the highest good, deeply hidden, yet everywhere present, unchanging, yet changing all things, never old, never new, yet making everything new, ever active, yet ever at rest, gathering all things to yourself, yet never in need. You seek, though you lack nothing. You love, but your love is not possessive. You watch over us, but without anxiety. Your heart is filled with pain, but you do not suffer. You are at once angry and at peace. You take back those you find, though you had never lost them. Though never in need, yet you rejoice over what you gain. We shower gifts on you, hoping to put you in our debt. Yet what have we that is not your gift? Without owing us anything, you repay our losses. You cancel our debts, but you lose nothing in doing so. You just, come on, please. I'm asking you. You've got to know God. And you've got to know God where you can talk about God in this way. Where you can be riveted by God. This is eternal life, to know the only true God and Jesus Christ. Because it is not enough to know God unless you also know the Son. For he who has seen the Son has seen the Father. And there's another good passage besides John 17.3. It's 2 Peter 3, verse 18. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Savior Jesus Christ. That is a command to you. This is stating what eternal life is, but there's a command to know Jesus Christ and to grow in the grace and knowledge of your Savior. Why is it that people don't want to know Christ? 
I remember being in London. I was at a Westminster conference that Martin Lloyd-Jones set up many, many decades ago. And I sat down with the Banner of Truth trustee and I pitched to him the idea about writing a book called Knowing Christ. And I remember sitting in this old room. It smelt. It wasn't nice. And he said, Mark, I've got to be honest with you. Books about our Lord Jesus Christ don't sell. Books about our Lord Jesus Christ do not sell. And I persevered and asked if I could still write it. Isn't that remarkable? This is eternal life that they know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And why is it that we don't really want to know Jesus Christ intimately and deeply? Why is it that we don't want His thinking stamped all over our thinking? It's because we are by nature so utterly unlike Him. And the closer we get to Him, the more we see how opposite to Him we are by nature ourselves. And so we keep Him at a distance. We keep Him where our sins are forgiven. We keep Him where, yes, we're going to heaven. We keep Him where there's a polite, I go to church, but we don't actually want to really know Him and make Him our life and our hope and our joy and our peace and our comfort and our way of thinking and living and acting and breathing because... He really is so utterly unlike us. And yet, as you draw close to Him, you are being transformed from one degree of glory to another as you behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is eternal life. That you know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now Jesus then says, I glorified you on earth, continuing the theme of glory, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. The work that you gave me to do. Remember he said, the hour has come. And he knows he's glorifying God by doing the work that he gave him to do. And yet this was unmitigated joy for the Son in pleasing the Father. The Son always does the things that are pleasing to the Father. Did you know it's Father's Day today? Oh, I'm not a big... If they had not even said anything or given me anything, my kids, I wouldn't have really cared. I, I mean that. I'm not like... I don't even think I deserve much. A cup of coffee and a smile and away we go. But I... Uh, I got this card this morning. i got to say, it's the greatest card I've ever received in my life for Father's Day. If I had my kids' permission, I would print off copies for you all. And it's amazing. Just the, the dexterity of words and humor from my daughter alone, which took up 85.6% of the card. And then the boys who are working with limited space and one uses a pen that runs out and doesn't finish the sentence. I have no idea what he wanted to say to me. Come on, Matthew. Thomas, thank you for taking me for ice cream. Uh, in other words, please take me for an ice cream. What is the work that God has given me to do? To be a good father. Do you think that I think this is awful? No. 
Are there difficult things about being a father? Yes. Were there difficult things for Christ about doing the work that God had given him to do? Of course there was. But when you recognize the work you've been given from above is to be a father, to be a mother, to be a friend, and that you're doing God's work and that you can glorify God in doing His work, you realize God is not a hard taskmaster. God has given you a work to do and it's meant to be for a Christian a joyful work. A work where Jesus can say here, I have glorified you. I have brought glory to your name by doing the work that you have given me to do. And I do not doubt for one second that there was a lot of joy in these words beneath all of the obvious pain of what they would mean for him shortly thereafter. And so he says with confidence, after saying those words, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. My friends, these words, you don't even know what to say. I, I, I now understand a little bit of why some dared not even to preach on this because you go back to Isaiah. We read it earlier, chapter 42, verse 8, that God will say, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I do not give to anyone else. And Jesus has the effrontery to say, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. Is there a more startling claim to divinity than these words here? Later on in Isaiah 48, verse 11, For my own sake I do it, for how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Jesus, knowing these words, having read these words, is prepared to say, Glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. He knew that as He went through the shame of the cross, He would be raised from the dead and He would ascend on high. And He had read Psalm 24, verses 7-11. to You know Psalm 24, 7-11? Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors. This is a psalm of a triumphal entry of a king that the King of glory may come in. Can you imagine heaven at this point where all of the saints, Moses, Abraham, Abigail, Ruth, Sarah, you name it, all of the saints had been waiting to sing this psalm as Jesus ascends into the heavenly places. And Psalm 24 is the psalm they're singing. Who is this King of glory? We've never seen Him. We've never seen the risen, exalted Lord even in heaven. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle, having conquered Satan, having defeated death, having taken away sin. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Father, glorify Me in Your presence with the glory that I had with You before the world began. And here, for the first time in all of cosmic history, is a risen, exalted Savior. Who is this King of glory? We now have our answer. It is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of hosts. He is the King of of glory. And John Owen makes this point, and it's one of my favorite quotes from John Owen. He says, This makes me to judge that the entrance of Jesus Christ 
into the holy sanctuary of God was the greatest instance of created glory that ever was or shall be until the consummation of all things. There had never been a singular moment of such glory as when the One who glorified God on earth was glorified by the Father at the cross and then ascended as the conquering King into the heavenly places so that all of His people might behold Him with unveiled faces. And that is our glory that we worship and serve the risen, glorious Savior. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank You for Your words and ask that these words may penetrate our hearts, our souls, our mind, that we may know what it is to say, who is this King of glory? And to know the answer to that in the person of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We're going to